He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Because we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ Jesus. Even so, we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by faith in him and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Before we open God's word together this morning, let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we are thankful that we have your word, that it illuminates our thinking to the realities of life. Fundamentally, it helps us to understand who we are as sinners, alienated from your life, walking in darkness, walking in the lie. But we know from your grace that you have illuminated us through your word to the truth, that as sinners, we are not inevitably lost, inevitably doomed to perish, but we have hope, and that hope is in the gospel. It is That hope is based on an objective event in history. When you sent your son to enter into history, to become a human being, to add to his deity, humanity, that he might go to the cross and there die as our substitute, paying the penalty for our sin, that by simply trusting in him, we will have everlasting life. And, Father, that that is not the end, that is the beginning. The goal is not eternal life. The goal is to have everlasting life. As Jesus said, he didn't come like the thief to steal and destroy, but to give life and to give it abundantly. And we have that abundant life only as we grow and mature and walk with you in our life. Now, fathers, we continue this study in in Ephesians, which focuses on the wealth that we have in Christ, and that is the foundation for our walk and our warfare. Father, we pray that we might be uh, challenged, motivated, encouraged, and strengthened as we study these things in your word, that we might understand your plan and your will more fully. In Christ's name, amen. Open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 3. Last week, we covered Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through uh, 7, 1 through 8, uh, primarily to get the context and to understand how this second verse should be understood. Today, we're going to focus on one aspect, one phrase of that, the dispensation of grace, as it is stated in verse 2, if indeed you have heard of this dispensation of, wait a minute, let me back up, I don't have that slide, this dispens, if, excuse me, if indeed you have heard of this dispensation of the grace of God which is given to me for you, and pointing out that on this passage, which was often used by dispensationalists to name the church age the dispensation of grace, that isn't what this passage is talking about, this isn't a good place to go to come up with that nomenclature, 
However, once we understood it, we saw that nevertheless it still is emphasizing this distinctive. It is to be understood as the grace that was given to Paul, which is his apostolic mission and message, which is that the church is a new entity in history where Jew and Gentile are now joined together in one as one new man, one new body, and he is building a new temple, all of which is important because that is the foundation for understanding the church age. So just to review, Paul begins by saying, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles. And then he stops. It's an abrupt stop. It's indicated by this M dash that is there. That's the longer dash. And we have to understand the structure here, which I think is so important. He starts off here saying for this reason, then he interrupts himself and he goes through this uh, secondary uh, discussion that extends down to um, uh, down to to verse actually verse thirteen, and we know that because it starts off this, the with the uh, same way in verse fourteen with the phrase um, for this reason, and in verse thirteen he comes to his conclusion of this section which is, therefore, I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations. And so as I pointed out last time, he is giving a rationale, which we'll look at in a little bit, uh, a rationale for why we should not get discouraged, no matter what the circumstances are, no matter what blindsides us, no matter what comes into our life uh, that that, uh, is different from what we had hoped and planned and wished for and that it seems like it is a setback, but there's not really a setback in the plan of God. And so it is just another opportunity for us to engage in ministry and to demonstrate uh, God's grace to those around us and as an opportunity to explain, uh, explain the gospel. We are reminded that Paul's mission was to the Gentiles. It didn't exclude ministry to the Jews, but he was primarily... Uh, called and commissioned to be the apostle to the Gentiles. As he states in Acts 22:21. God told him at the time of his salvation, I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. We looked at a number of other passages as well, uh, like Romans 11:13, where he specifically states, I am an apostle to the Gentiles. And he was specifically that one. So we have to understand that in light of what he is doing here in explaining the distinct circumstances of the gospel for Gentiles now that never before had happened in history, that had not been revealed in the Old Testament. It wasn't anticipated. It wasn't hinted at. It was something that was kept in by the secret uh, counsel of God that he did not make known until... Uh, the church age. And then in the, as he uh, introduces this in verse 2, this uh, what seems to be a distraction but really is integral to understanding why they should not be dis- discouraged. He says, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation, and notice I have italicized that whole phrase, of the grace of God which was given to me. That is taken together. It's not the dispensation of grace which was given to me because that would mean that the dispensation of grace or the church age was given to Paul. And that just doesn't make sense at all. 
So it has to be understood this way, and I'll go through the reasons for that a little bit later on, and that it is understanding that message. See, as we're seeing, the grace of God, which was given to him, is a term used frequently by Paul to reference God's calling him to be a disciple, uh, an apostle. He's called to be an apostle, and that for him is, I am the least of the saints. He, he looks at all of the sins he's committed before, his legalism, his hostility to the body of Christ, his hostility to, to Christians, his desire to murder and imprison all of them and to, to just put out this whole uh, fire that's been lit from the day of Pentecost. And he is amazed that God in his grace not only saves him, but has commissioned him to be an apostle to the Gentiles. That's the grace that was given to him, is that commission to be an apostle that is combined with his message of uh, as an apostle. Okay, And understanding that is what he's getting at in verse 13 when he says, Therefore, that is on the basis of understanding my mission to preach the mystery doctrine of the church age, and, and that, is, that is part of the gospel. He says, therefore, I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you. This is not a rationale that has occurred to most of us when we're facing difficult times. We think of other rationales in the scripture. We think of the essence of God rationale. We know that when something uh, happens in our life that is unexpected, that it's not outside of the omniscience of God, uh, he always knew that was going to happen to us. It's not outside of his omnipotence to handle because God can handle everything. And it is not outside of his plan for us. So we go through the essence of God and we think about how those attributes apply to our, our circumstances. That's the essence of God ra- rationale. There are some other rationales that I have covered in the past, but this is a new one, and which I'm going to call the mystery doctrine rationale. So the whole point of this intervening section from 2 to 12 is to state that if the Ephesians, and by application, if, if we fully understood God's mission for Paul, and that mission is still true. It reverberates down through the centuries as the, the, the fundamental foundation of the church age and for the church age believer. If we understood that mission and message, then we would not be discouraged by anything. And as a result, we would not uh, be knocked off balance as a result of negative circumstances. So let me summarize this mystery doctrine rationale for you. Now, I'm going to eventually simplify this, but this, as I pointed out just in my study in the last two or three weeks, identifying this, so we're, we're going to compress it and get it simple, if possible. And so I'm summarizing it in four points. First of all, the mystery doctrine describes the new revelation that has been given to Paul, but it was also given to the other apostles. But he's the one who has the responsibility for articulating it in the epistles. And he, as the apostle to the Gentiles, it was a primary emphasis in his message. The mystery doctrine describes this new revelation, never before hinted at or revealed in history. It was given to Paul and the other apostles regarding the new dispensation of the church age. 
It is the distinctive of this church age dispensation that there's no longer distinction between Jew and Gentile and that now they are, uh, they are one in the body of Christ. And that's the second point. In this new dispensation, God is building a new temple of believers. He is indwelling that temple both corporately in the church as well as individually in each church age believer. So he is building a new temple composed of Jew and Gentile equally in this new man, also called this new body. So it's the new man, the new body, the new temple. That's this new entity, never even hinted at in the Old Testament. Third point, this new identity that we have because we are in Christ, we are in this new man, we are in this new body, we are in this new temple. This new identity involves new blessings. It involves a new joint inheritance, a joining together of Jew and Gentile in a new body, and we are together partakers of the promise in uh, in Christ that is so incredible that we should never lose heart in proclaiming our new wealth in Christ. That's Ephesians uh, 3.8. This is all ours. We have to really understand who we are in Christ. That is our new identity. People today say, oh, well, I just don't have a good self-image. The correction isn't getting pumped up through psychobabble. The correction is learning who we are in Christ and living in light of who we are in Christ. And so that brings us to the application of this rationale. Because of who we are in Christ, our assets, our privileges, our position, our future inheritance, our identity, there is no excuse for ever losing heart or becoming uh, discouraged by our circumstance. For every circumstance, what we perceive to be good or bad, is under the sovereign control of God. All things work together for good. Uh, And so as a result, it's just another opportunity to tell others about our wealth in Christ that can be theirs also. Paul is not discouraged because he was in prison for two years or in, in Caesarea by the sea. Then he is taken on board a ship, and then there's a shipwreck, and then he goes and he's in in prison again in Rome for two years. It never discourages him. He just sees each situation as another opportunity to serve the Lord. I have my differences at times with the theology of John MacArthur in terms of his soteriology and his lordship salvation, but he is taking a good and solid and biblical stand now in terms of uh, resisting the government mandate that churches should not meet and the penalties that they wish to impose upon his church. And he was interviewed on um, on a Fox News show a couple of weeks ago, and they said, well, what happens if they throw you in prison? And he said, well, I've had all kinds of ministries in my life. I've had beach ministries, youth ministries, church ministries, women's ministries, men's ministries. I've never had a prison ministry. I look forward to that opportunity. See, that's the mentality here. You know, in another place I heard him say, the Apostle Paul 
uh, went to prison many times. Why should I think that any of us should be any different for our faith? So we shouldn't let any circumstance get us down if we understand our role within the proclamation of this mystery doctrine. And for a lot of Christians, this, this idea that, well, now we are Jew and Gentile together in one body seems somewhat difficult and distant because uh, we don't understand how it was before the church where there's this, this distinction, and that's why I spent a lot of time on that back in chapter 2, verses 11, uh, 11 through 13. So this is all grounded on a proper understanding of this phrase, the grace of God which was given to you. What does that actually mean? And I pointed out last time that it's used again in verse 7. It's used many other places in the New Testament, but it's used right in this context where Paul says, I became a minister of this gospel according to the what? The gift of the grace of God given to me. That's his call to be an apostle, his commissioning as, a, as an apostle. And being a minister of this gospel indicates the message of his mission, okay? So we can't really separate those two, and that's something I'll point out again as we go through a little bit of word study understanding what is this thing called a dispensation or a stewardship or an administration or a dispensing. Uh, so we got to have to spend a little time on that word. And in so verse 2, that phrase, the grace of God which was given to me, is repeated in verse 7. So it shows us in terms of the structure of the passage that everything here is tied to an understanding of that phrase. So that that gives us that, that structure. In verse 7 he says, uh, as I just read, he was made a minister of this, this grace, this great gift, of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. And then in verse 8, which starts the next paragraph, to me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. Notice, it's not the grace of salvation. It's the grace of his apostolic mission and message. So the conclusion is that the grace given to him refers to Paul's apostolic gift and the message, his function as an apostle. So now look. let's look at this in verse 2. We have to break this down. There's so much that's packed into each one of these verses in this chapter. But unfortunately, there are so many things that are either mistaught or not taught or just ignored. Or in, in many churches, what we would get is, if we got it, anything at all, we would just get one message on 1 through 7, and then we would go to the next paragraph, and we wouldn't really get it. So we overview, we repeat, we go over it so we can't forget it. Verse 2, If indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me, and as I pointed out last time, the way it is typically uh, interpreted or was among older dispensationalists, is this idea that, um, let me see if I can even find, there we go. The administration of the grace of God, and that would be uh, the which was given to me goes to the administration. And that's typical, so it's called the dispensation of grace. 
But as I pointed out last time, it, the reference of the relative pronoun, uh, or the, excuse me, it's a relative use of a participle, goes to uh, the grace of God which was given to me. That's your reference. The which was given to me goes to the grace of God, not to the administration. And the grace of God focuses on his apostolic office and the function of his apostolic office. So what is a dispensation? Because that is how the word was translated in the, in the uh, King James Version, carried over into the New King James Version and some of the other uh, 19th century-based translation also retained that word dispensation. But that is not a user-friendly term uh, today. Uh, we talk about dispensationalism, and people will go to uh, their Bible, and they won't see that word used in, um, in the New Testament. And so they wonder what exactly is a dispensation. Well, the English word dispensation comes from the Latin word dispensatio, which is what was tr- the, translated into the Vulgate from, from the Greek. And we think of a, a dispensatio had to do with uh, weighing something out, dispensing something, measuring something, distributing something. But as I was going back through redoing word studies and everything on this, I had looked this up in a different dictionary, and there was a third meaning listed in this particular uh, uh, Latin dictionary for dispensatio. And it had to do with the administration of a law. Now, that's very interesting. See, the problem is we get these words that are in our Bible that really go back and have a, a, a history that is often somewhat ignored. And because we don't use the words in quite the same way today, we have to go back and do word studies not only in the English, but sometimes the, the Latin and the Greek and everything else. So it has to do with the administration of a law or the administration of something. And that's really the, the, the thing that we see in, uh, in the scriptures. And so when we get into other things, for example, we look at Webster's Third International Dictionary. Under the word dispensation, it identifies it as, first of all, a divine ordering and administration of worldly affairs. That's pretty good for a secular dictionary to get the uh, correct theological definition and assign it the first meaning. Second, it says a system of principles, promises, and rules divinely ordained and administered. So with each administration, there are particular Rules are regulations that govern the administration during that administration. And then third, it says that it's a period of history during which a particular divine revelation has predominated in the affairs of mankind. So it gets that idea that this is based on divine revelation. And then fourth, uh, just a general statement, any general state or ordering of things. So... What we see and what we learn from this is a dispensation takes place within a time period, but it isn't necessarily related to time. Now, that always confuses people. You know, every other year I teach dispensationalism when I go to Kiev, 
And every time I come to this and I say, a dispensation doesn't have its primary meaning related to time. When you talk about the Carter administration back in the 70s or the Nixon administration or the Clinton administration, is a time period the primary thing that you're talking about? No, you're talking about the attributes and the qualities and the characteristics of that time when that person was president. But it is bounded by time. It's a secondary or tertiary idea. It's not the main idea in the word dispensation. We look at other words that we use in Scripture, age, that, ref- that has primary meaning as a time period. So dispensation comes within an age, but they're not necessarily syn- synonymous. So a dispensation is an administration that takes place during a time period, but time isn't the focal point here. That may get abstract for some of you, so you'll wrestle with it for a while. Um, so we break it down and we see that the basic meaning is the action of administering or ordering something, dealing out or distributing something. So a good word to use, that which is used in a number of modern translations, is just this word administration. But who's doing the administrating? God is doing the administrating because God is the one who oversees history, but he is delegating that to an administrator, a human administrator, within these different time periods. And so in each one of these administrations, there are different, uh, there are different characteristics, different guidelines, different regulations. And so we can think about the fact that if we go back into the Old Testament for a simple a- illustration, when you're in the dispensation of the law, which extends from the giving of the Mosaic law on Mount Sinai until the coming of Christ, the primary characteristic or regulation are the 613 commandments in the Mosaic law. And those commandments were never given for salvation. They were given for the overall guidelines of how a nation that was God's people were to live their lives to be a testimony to the peoples, to the kingdoms uh, around them. But then when Christ came, he is the end of the law. He brings that to completion, and there is now a new dispensation or administration that is characterized by grace. But we have to be careful because there was grace in the Old Testament. We go to John chapter 1 when we're told grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. But there was grace all through the Old Testament. God's grace was demonstrated in the Garden of Eden that at the instant Adam ate the fruit, he just didn't dematerialize. God had a plan, and he was gracious, and there was redemption and forgiveness of sin, and Adam and Eve went on to live their lives for almost nine, for over 900 years in the case of, the case of Adam. So these are the first two characteristics we see. Now, the word that is translated uh, dispensation or administration or... Um, sometimes dispensing, is this word oikonomos is a noun form, and oikonomia. Oikonomia is the word we have in this, this context, and it refers to management. And it is an off, uh, uh, office, 
And it's the word from which we get the word economy. You can hear it if you say it out loud. Don't do that. Economy, economy. That's where we get it. Economy is the administration of the uh, of the goods and services and financial resources uh, of a nation. So it has to do with that. And it's a uh, compound word. It's made up of oikos for house and namas for law. So if you're living in a house and you're a four-year-old, there are certain rules and regulations for you that do not apply when you're a 14-year-old. And they don't apply if you're still living with your parents when you're 24 because the rules change because of the circumstances. And so that which applied in the Old Testament period under the law, uh, Paul uses this analogy where he says that's, that's like being, un, that's like a child in the house under a pedagogue. But now once you have reached uh, sonship, then you're no longer under the pedagogue. There is a change. And so we are in a, under different house rule than what existed in the Old Testament. Uh, dispensations. So we look at this uh, in terms of the word economy, which is in, in Webster's, that it's the management of the resources of a community, a country, the, dispensation, the, the disposition of regulation of the parts or functions of any organic whole, an organized system, or the management of household affairs. So that's the idea. So all these terms go together. So when you think about a dispensation, it is God's administration of human history. God is sovereign, that he rules in the affairs of men. And we're seeing an example of that. We see such chaos around us. So many people wonder what in the world is going on, and you have people who are pressing the panic button, and they're fearful because, they're afraid, because of the, uh, the virus, and they're afraid the economy is going to collapse, and all these things are happening and every time we turn around, it's something else, whether it's giant hornets, murderous hornets, or whether it is uh, the death of a Supreme Court justice, or now the president has, has been tested positive for COVID and he's sick. What is going to happen next? Well, we'll find out when they start uh, meeting in the judicial, Judiciary Committee in the Senate starts meeting next week to interview uh, the president's nominee, Amy uh, Coney Barrett. So who knows what will happen next. And some people think it's going to go away after November 3rd. Do not kid yourself. Because of the lax uh, application of law enforcement with these riots on these anarchist groups, it isn't going to go away and uh, we just need to pray for our nation so that those in leadership can make, uh, make the correct decisions. So the basic meaning, which I just put up the last line on this slide, thus it means managing or administering the affairs of a household. How do we, how do, we do that? This slide just is a breakdown of the three words that we see here and there in the Scripture. The oikonomeo is the verb. And it's used one time. We'll see that in just in the passage in just a minute. And it means to function as a steward or to function as an administrator. The noun form itself, oikonomos, has to do with a steward or administrator. It's used ten times also in Luke 16, which we'll look at in just a minute. 
And then third, oikonomia, which has to do with the administration of something, how it is administered. That's used uh, three times in Ephesians, Ephesians 1.10, Ephesians 3.2, which we're looking at, and Ephesians 3.9. So this, these, this is an important word. It's a foundation for understanding dispensationalism. Now, Jesus uses this in Luke 16, 1 and 2. This is just the beginning of a parable. It goes down to about verse 11 or 12 called the parable of the unjust steward. And uh, we don't need to get into the interpretation of that parable because that's not the point. The point is just looking at how this is, is used. And so Jesus teaches his disciple. He says there's a certain rich man who had a steward, and he's, this is the oikonomos. He's got a steward. He's got an administrator. He's the manager of the store. He's the manager of the property. He's the one who oversees the estate, and so he has these obligations to make sure that the debts are collected and that the bills are paid, and he hasn't done well at this. An accusation was brought uh, to him, that is, to the rich man, in the analogy, the rich man is God, that this man was wasting his goods. Now, the application of this is going to be in relation to Israel because they are being irresponsible and wasting that which God has graciously given them. But it also is really going to uh, tweak the Pharisees because the idea in Pharisaical theology was that they had sort of their own version of the health and wealth gospel, that if you were spiritually solid with God, he was going to make you wealthy. And so they, they had ways of twisting all the laws so that they could uh, abuse the law against interest so they could figure out how to uh, charge interest in a roundabout way. Instead of charging in money, they would charge in, in goods. And so anyway, that was all about, uh, that's what the background is. So Jesus is really nailing them to the wall over their greed and their abuse of the law. And failures as the administrators under the law of, and the dispensation of Israel, uh, dispensation of the law in, in Israel. So in verse two, the rich man calls him, calls the steward in, the administrator in, the manager, and says to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship. That's related to the verb of how you carried out your administration, for you can no longer be steward. So the idea here is that a steward is somebody who is appointed and somebody who can lose the appointment. That applies to a dispensation. Each dispensation identifies someone who's responsible in the church age. It's the church, and we can lose that administration through failure. Uh, and we are to be held responsible for how we handle that which God has given us. That is the accountability aspect in a dispensation. So as I have pointed out in definitions, that this indicates that there is a responsibility given to the steward. There are tests related to his integrity as a steward, and there it can be failure on the part of the steward, in which case, as happened in previous dispensations, the dispensation ends and a new dispensation with a new administrator comes into being. So what we see here is, first of all, that two parties are involved. 
One party has authority to delegate responsibilities, that's God, and the other has the responsibility to carry out the duties. So the church has responsibility to carry out these duties. Paul had the responsibility as an apostle to, part of his duty was to explain what the new uh, responsibilities were. So we see that there are specific responsibilities for the steward in 16.1 and that there's accountability and responsibility inherent to the arrangement. At any point in time, the steward can be called upon to explain how he has fulfilled his responsibilities. And then fourth, a change can be made at any time if unfaithfulness is found. Now, the next passage I want to look at is just kind of background. This is how Paul used the term in 1 Corinthians 4. He says, Let a man so consider us. Who's the us? The us is the apostles. Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards or administrators of the what? Of the mysteries of God. Mysteries of God are previously unrevealed information. They were not hinted at at all in the Old Testament, and Paul says it's been given to the apostles. In this chapter, he calls them the holy apostles and prophets. Here again in 4.1, it's not just Paul who gets the mystery revelation. It's all of the apostles, and they are responsible administrators of the content of the gospel in communicating this new information to the church. Now, the next verse has always been one of my favorite. In one of my early pastorates, I had three guys who were elders, four guys who were elders, but three of them were entrepreneurs. These were guys, and one guy went into big companies, and he was like an efficiency expert, and his, he would go through and say, give everybody, okay, where's your department? Bring in the head of the department. What are your goals and objectives, and what did you accomplish this year in terms of your goals and objectives? All three of these guys thought totally in terms of measurable, quantifiable goals and objectives. And so we had a little headbutting contest at least once a year where they would say, well, what are your goals for next year? And my, I would say my goal is to be faithful in teaching the Word of God. Well, wait, wait a minute. What about goals related to the expansion of the church and outreach? I said, you can't quantify goals in the spiritual life. Every time I've ever tried to do that, God always seems to interfere and throw a monkey wrench into things and nothing happens because we're on God's timetable and plan and not on, on your quantifiable goal plan. So I don't know if I ever made any headway with those guys, but, um, that was about the only thing we would butt heads on, but that they were bringing their all of their experience in their secular job and assign, and and uh, imputing that to their role as a spiritual leader in the church. Which there are some business aspects that do apply to a church, but there are a lot that don't, and so you can't really always do that. So in verse two, Paul says it is required of stewards of the administrator, that they be found faithful, faithful in doing what God told you to do. As a pastor teacher, as an apostle, it is to teach the word. It is not to go out and knock on doors. It is not to do visitation. It is not to do all of the other things that 
a lot of pastors and a lot of churches do. I, I had ministered with a lot of black pastors at one time, and I would talk about the importance of teaching the word, and they would tell me what's expected of them as a pastor in a black church. They've got to be involved in going to city council and doing this in the community and that in the community and this other thing. Where do you have time to study? Well, if I get up an hour earlier every day, then that's when I can study. But the rest of the time, I've got to do all these other chores and jobs. Well, that's why pastors have burnout. It's because they're not doing the job God gave them to do, and they're doing the job that uh, a congregation gave them to do. But a pastor is to be faithful in handling the word, teaching the word, uh, edifying the congregation and building them up uh, spiritually. And the message of the church age has to be taught because that is directly related to the spiritual life of everybody in the church. So I'm not going to look at those other two verses. So we see from this that God is the one to whom men are responsible in discharging stewardship. I am responsible to God. He is the one that can evaluate that. Second, faithfulness is required of those to whom a dispensational responsibility is committed. Third, a stewardship may end at some appointed time, according to Galatians 4, 4 through 7. Now let's look at some related terms. Ionos has to do with a time period. That's what we normally think of as an age. So we have the age of the Gentiles, that's comprised of three dispensations. The first dispensation is perfect environment or innocence, as it's often called. That's not innocence in the sense of naivete. That is innocence in the sense of judicially innocent of sin, not guilty. Okay, it's a legal term. Second dispensation is human conscience. Third dispensation is human government, all during the age of the Gentiles. And then God sort of washes his hands of the Gentiles after the Tower of Babel, and he calls Abram, and you have the dispensation of Israel. You have the, or the age of Israel comprised of the dispensation of the patriarchs, the dispensation of the law, and the dispensation of the, the Messiah when Christ is on the earth. So these ages are lengthy segments that are then broken down into subsequent dispensations. And uh, chronos is another time word that focuses on a chronological time in a sequence of of events. So you have the uh, age of Israel and this sequence of events, the sequence of administrations also involves tribulation because that's part of the age of Israel. So each of these are different terms that indicate the time factor uh, for an age. So we can chart out the ages this way. You have the age of the Gentiles from creation to Abraham. And then you have the age of Abraham from uh, the call, I mean the age of Israel from Abraham to Christ's coming, then you have the church age, and that will be followed by the messianic age. This is talking about ages, so I don't have the tribulation in there, but it is between the church age and the messianic age, and it's the last seven years of the age of Israel. And then we go into eternity future. So what we've seen here is that a dispensation can be understood as a stewardship and administration, the management of others' property. The the other is God. We are managing God's property. As a pastor, I'm an under-shepherd of Christ's 
sheep, and my responsibility is to be uh, faithful. So a dispensation becomes a distinct and identifiable administration in the development of God's plan and purposes for human history. And Ephesians 3.2 states that if you have heard of this dispensation, it's related to what? The grace of God which was given to me, Paul's apostolic commission and message. Now, one of the important aspects, I'm going to skip that slide. Uh, one of the important aspects of, of how dispensations go forward has to do with the giving of new revelation. And in the Old Testament, that's through covenants. But in the New Testament, we have the revelation of new, uh, of God's new administration through the mystery, the previously unrevealed information. Now, when we talk about dispensationalism, there's basically three things that characterize a dispensationalist. These were first articulated by Charles Ryrie. I'm going to modify the third one verbally, but he, he does a good job here. The third one is a little bit awkward for most people. In fact, we had a whole uh, paper on this given by Bruce Baker for the pastor's uh, group on Friday morning this last week, which was very good. The first is a consistent, literal, historical, and grammatical interpretation of the Bible. Literal doesn't mean that you ignore figures of speech, but using figures of speech in the normal way in which figures of speech are used. A figure of speech has specific meaning. And so you always know that when somebody uses that idiom or that figure of speech, you know exactly what it means because it has a literal sense and also a specific figurative senses. And that's why you have to study the language for the literal part. You have to understand the verses in light of the time in which they were written. That's the historical part. You have to understand the breakdown of the grammar. That's the grammatical part. And then you are then able to properly see the meaning of the text. If you are consistent in your literal historical grammatical interpretation of the Bible, that will lead to the second characteristic, which is a distinction between God's plan for Israel and God's plan for the church. And we see that in this whole chapter. This is about the fact that the age of Israel and the dispensation of the law have ended and that there is a new entity where Jew and Gentile are united together as one new man, one new body, one new temple. And that what God is doing is giving us the riches of Christ, the wealth of Christ that is the foundation for our walk, which is chapters 4 through uh, 6, 10, and then warfare in the last part of 6. So that's important. And third, the overall purpose of God's plan for creation is his glory. That is difficult for people to get their hands around. We had a lot of time and discussion on this Friday morning. And the reason is, is because you'll go to a Presbyterian church that has covenant theology and they recite the Westminster Confession of Faith, which has the chief end and purpose of man is to, uh, in, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. See, I, they believe in glorifying God. Yeah, but they don't work it out theologically in their system. That's as far as they go with it. Their unifying principle in, um, of the Bible and of history is God's redemptive plan. Sounds good, doesn't it? 
What about the angels? Oops, we left out a major part of God's plan. That has to do with the angels and the angelic conflict. So you have to have a broader category, and that's where uh, glorifying God comes from. But Ryrie only gets two sentences to explaining it. Bruce Baker did a good job in his paper of explaining it, but both of them left out the fact that what this really shows is the glorification of God in the angelic conflict, which incorporates then all of the angels and all of human history. So that's uh, that's my addition to this uh, definition problem. So the golden rule of interpretation is that when the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense. If you you read it and it makes sense, don't try to, oh, it must be symbolic of this or that must represent that and this must represent something else. Stick with its its literal sense if if it makes sense. Therefore, take every word at its primary, ordinary, usual, literal meaning unless there's contextual evidence of something else. Unless the facts of the immediate context studied in light of related passages and axiomatic and fundamental truths indicate clearly otherwise. That's the golden rule of interpretation. When you look this up in Webster's New International Dictionary, he says it's that literal interpretation is the natural or usual construction and implication of a writing or expression following the ordinary and apparent sense of the words not allegorical or metaphorical. So that's literal interpretation. That leads to the literal interpretation of the Abrahamic covenant where God promised an eternal, everlasting covenant to Abraham, which means it's still in effect even though Israel has rejected the Messiah. God still has a future plan, and he will bring them back uh, to the land. And so that, that Abrahamic covenant is then developed in the land covenant the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant in the Old Testament. We've all studied those things a lot. And so we see that God took Israel out of the land, and he has temporarily uh, assigned his work to the church age, but that there will be a future return of Israel. In fact, the scriptures in the Old Testament indicate two end-time regatherings. At the end of the church age, the age is ended by the rapture, There'll be seven years of tribulation and then the second coming. According to these passages, especially Isaiah 11, 11 to 12, but also in Ezekiel 20, 33 to 38, Ezekiel 22, 17 to 22, uh, 36, 22, Zephaniah 2, 1 to 2, and Ezekiel 37, Israel is regathered in unbelief first. A lot of people taught that, oh, well, this doesn't matter that all these Jews are going back to Israel right now because they're not regenerate. Well, they have to be regathered in an unregenerate state to have a nation so that their nation can sign a treaty with the Antichrist that begins these last seven years. So there has to be some sort of restoration of a nation. So that's what we're seeing now. And then... There will be a second regathering at the end of the tribulation in belief. And this is indicated also. The Isaiah 11, 11 to 12 passage, I think, is the strongest. And it talks about the, um, 
the, the second regathering in belief, but it says, I will regather them a second time. Wait a minute, when was the first time? Well, it couldn't have been before Christ because that was only about 100,000 Jews. It was not even uh, 25% of the diaspora that returned. And there hasn't been another one. So it has to be what's been going on since the end of the 19th century. 48% of Jews worldwide now live in Israel. There's never been, that, that's like double anything that ever happened in the history in history since 586 B.C. So as I said earlier, I'm going to skip that slide because I've already explained it, that glorifying God is in contrast to the narrow redemptive purpose of man. So what we've seen here is in this phrase, you have heard of the dispensing of the grace of God which was given to me for you Gentiles. The phrase, the grace of God given to me, equals the mission and the message about the new man, new body, and new temple. That means, and is the same as, a new dispensation based on that mission and message. So it's a new dispensation based on the grace gift, that is the apostleship given to Paul, and the message God revealed to the apostle. So if you have it in, in kind of a complicated way, it's still the dispensation of the grace of God, but it's the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to Paul if you understand it correctly. So it's really better just, I think, just to call it the, the church age, which is character, characterized by a distinctive and expanded uh, grace of God uh, given to us. And so next time we'll come back and talk more about this new revelation given to Paul and the mystery doctrine with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Our Father, we're thankful that we have this revelation written, recorded, preserved for us in our scripture that we can come to understand that because of this mystery doctrine, we have such a heightened identity. No believer in the Old Testament ever had anything like us. John the Baptist was the greatest of the Old Testament believers, and yet he is has seen nothing compared to what we have in the church age. And yet we don't understand it. We don't take time to really explore it, and too often we misuse it. Father, encourage us with what we've learned that we need to really live each day in light of this mystery doctrine and our identity, the fact that we are uh, members of this new body. We're members of your body. We are corporately a new temple. We are a new entity, a new man, a new person, and that you have changed everything from the moment of our salvation, and we need to live in light of this new identity. And therefore, we should remember this when things come up that discourage us or depress us or get us out of sorts or angry that you're still in control and the new circumstances just tell us we have a new opportunity to serve you and to communicate your grace to those around us. Father, we pray for those who may be listening that might have never understood the gospel clearly before. That doesn't mean you have to clean up your life. It doesn't mean you have to get rid of your sin nature. It doesn't mean 
that you have to somehow repent and with great remorse and impress you with their sorrow for their sin. The sin's paid for. Christ died for it. The issue now isn't the sin, it's faith. Trusting in Christ as Savior. That's the essence of grace. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with what we've learned today. In Christ's name, amen.